0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. You remember that we left off with uh, the children of Israel, the Israelites desiring a king. They wanted a king so bad, and they they wanted a leader, and, and they failed to recognize that God was was their ruler and God was their king and yet they wanted a tangible fleshly representation of that and and they they cried out for it and they begged for it and and God gave them what they wanted and we talked about how that there is the the perfect will of God and there is the permissive will of God and that if we push and we beg and we put ourselves in situations to make things happen the way we want it to go, that it will go the way we want it to. We can make it happen and God will give in and God will relent and God will give us what we want. And sometimes what we want, like what the children of Israel wanted is not what we need. And, and maybe you've experienced that and you've pushed and you've made it happen and and you ended up with a Saul in, in your life and, and, I think what we're going to see tonight is that God can still work despite that. Despite our bad decisions, despite our fleshly tendencies, God can still work. I think we also see that in prayer, when we go to the Lord, there's two types of prayer. There's the type that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Then there's the type that we often pray, which is, Lord, not your will, but my will be done. There's really two types of prayer, right? And we would never say that, Lord, not your will, but my will be done. But essentially, that's what we often pray. Lord, this is what I want, and I'm going to make it happen. And please put your stamp on it. Would you do that? And so First Samuel chapter 11, then Nahash, interesting, his, his name means serpent. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, which is an Israelite community. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And so Nahash came and he encamped against them, which is a, a, a military besieging. It was, it was obvious to uh, threaten. It was, a, it was a strike militarily. And they were threatened. They were intimidated. And so they said, you know what? Make a covenant. Make a treaty with us and, and we'll serve you. We'll do what you want. And Nahash... The Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. And so he says, look, I'll, I'll sign a covenant, I'll make a treaty, a peace treaty with you, but you've got to put out your right eyes. And the reason for that is because they would be worthless in war if they were to do that. As a guy that only has one eye, I understand what it's like to try to Do things with one eye, and it would be very difficult to be a warrior, to be a military guy with one eye. I mean, you know, I'm pretty vulnerable over here. Right now, if somebody was to attack me from this side, I I think they'd pretty much have me, you know, and I'm also going deaf in that ear. So, Um, but I understand what that's like. And so that's why he did that. It was military strategy, plus, it would be a way to demoralize them and, and just, you know, make them feel like they were worthless. And it's interesting that this guy's name, Nahash, means serpent. Because the devil is presented scripturally as a serpent. And here's Nahash coming to them, much like the devil does. Where the devil has no authority to attack our lives unless we give it to him. And if the devil has a foothold in your life, if the devil has a way in your life, if you are giving the devil room to work and you're giving in to his schemes, into his temptations, then you allowed it. The devil doesn't have the authority to just come into our life and ruin us. And, and there's a tendency in in Christians' lives, in our lives, to, to do two things with the devil. On one hand, there is a segment that wants to pretend like he doesn't exist. And we never talk about him And we don't ever uh, pray against the schemes of the devil. And we just pretend like that spiritual warfare is not at all something that we're going through. Then there's the other segment that wants to give you the impression that the devil is under every bush and rock and around every corner. And that he is just involved in every sin. You know, there's the demon of chocolate and the demon of cigarettes, and the demon of this, and you've got to, you know, pray down uh, demonic uh, strongholds, and it's just, it gets really weird and unscriptural. And so there's two tendencies, to give the devil no credit, or to give the devil way too much credit. And, And here, we find with Nahash that he didn't have any authority in their lives unless they gave it to him. We also see that the tendency is to to want to sign kind of a peace agreement with the devil to to just exist as Christians, where we're kind of at peace with the devil and and we're we're cool with the the foothold that he has in our life and we're cool with the the stronghold that he has and 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 it's okay that that we're continually giving into this sin and we're not fighting against it and we also see that. That Nahash wanted to blind these guys. And I think that's exactly what the devil wants to do in our life. He wants to blind us. He, he wants to blind us to our weaknesses. He wants to blind us to his schemes and to his attacks. And, and we have to fight against that. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. And at least these guys understood that they couldn't save themselves. That they needed to find somebody outside of themselves to rescue them. Which is more than can be said for many people who even claim to be Christians who want to and think that they can rescue themselves and that they're self-sufficient. At least they recognized that they had to go find somebody else to deliver them. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And so Saul has been anointed king, but you have to remember there's really no monarchy set up at all. There's nowhere for Saul to live. there's no policy there there's nothing set up for him to do. He has no job description they They just wanted a king, but they really don't know what that even means. so Saul just goes back home and you know he's a farmer. remember his dad had the sheep and the you know uh, the donkeys got lost and and so he's he's a farmer and he goes back to doing what he knows to do until the Lord speaks to him and I think that we can learn a lot from Saul early on in his life and early on in his ministry. We saw last week that he started humbly. He ends up being an arrogant jerk, but he starts with humility. And here I think we see more of that humility. It wasn't like he said, you know what, make me a palace and I want a throne and give me a crown and I'm going to rule you people. He just goes back to doing what he had always done. I I think that's a great attribute. He also is waiting on the Lord for God to give him direction. And I think this is, is great for those of us that are involved in ministry, which many of you are. Those of you that want to be involved in ministry, we have desires. We, we have things that God has placed on our heart. But sometimes between the revelation of God and the fulfillment of that, there are years of just waiting on Him to give us direction. And I think we see that with Saul. Just say, I'm going to wait on the Lord to see what he has for me. And so God may have made something clear to you that he wants you to do, but it doesn't mean he wants you to do it today. He might have lots of preparation for you. And in the meantime, you just wait on the Lord and serve him in in the things that he gives you opportunity to do. And there's always this question, well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? What exactly does that mean? Well, if you think about a waiter, what does a waiter do? A waiter serves. A, A waiter meets needs and and i think that's a really good picture of what it means to wait on the lord serve meet needs be open to whatever god has for you and ultimately when god opens that door of the thing that he revealed to you that he has for you to do then it'll be blessed by him and in the meantime you just wait and so they hear or saul hears about the trouble and the threat from nahash And it says, the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. Now this almost seems contradictory, doesn't it? That the spirit of God came upon him and his anger was greatly aroused. And then we're going to see him in verse seven. He took up a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, whoever does not go out With Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. I mean, they were unified. This is interesting. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul. He gets super angry. He takes oxen, he hacks them to bits, and he sends them throughout all the country. And I think this is a great thing for us as Christians, especially Christian men, to hear. That the spirit of God coming upon you does not make you a pansy, does not make you a woman, does not make you enable uh, to have masculinity and, and to be a man and to be angry at the right things and, and I think this applies uh, to ladies as well, but but certainly men, because I think the church has done a really good job of stripping men of their masculinity uh, of taking that warrior. Spirit that exists in men, and and basically replacing it with skipping through the daisies and you know singing songs that only twelve year old girls should sing, and and that's not at all what it means uh, to be a man, and it's certainly not at all what it means to be a Christian man. We see here with 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 Saul, the spirit of God came upon him, and and he was angry, and he went out and he did what any good man does—he killed an animal. He, and he sent it all over the place. And, and I'm not saying that, that this justifies being angry and, and being a jerk and, and being uh, violent. The Bible says in the book of James that the righteousness of God or the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so there is a balance. And you know when you are in the flesh and when you're not. Here the spirit of God came upon Samuel. He was in the spirit. And he was angry. And I think a great test for this is where your anger stems from. If you look at Jesus, again, a great example of a guy who was super um, sensitive and passionate. But he was a man's man also. He went into the temple with a whip. He drove dudes out. He turned tables over. He was a man's man. He, He wasn't a pansy. He wasn't afraid to get in somebody's face like he did with the religious leaders, but he also knew how to handle people gently and kindly. And so being a man involves having discretion. It, it involves having common sense, knowing how to handle situations and, and how to handle people and, and not just flying off half-cocked all the time. Knowing, you know what, this person's sensitive and, and, and this, this person over here, you know what? You've got to hit them upside the head with a 2 by four to get through to him, see, and understanding different personalities. That that was Jesus. He understood that. I mean, you, you know, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him, and I mean, he hit Nicodemus hard. But then in John chapter 4, we see him dealing with the Samaritan woman very gently, and, and yet directly. And so, Jesus understood how to deal with people. And Jesus got angry at times. But when he did, it was always for the sake of somebody else. It was never the way that he was being treated. Somebody said something he didn't like and he flies off the handle. Somebody bumps him in a crowd. You know, like the the lady with the issue of blood, you know, and he's all irritated. You want to fight? What's up, lady? Come on. You know, that that wasn't Jesus. He, He wasn't angry over things that happened to him. I mean, he's being beaten, his beard ripped out of his face, a a pillowcase over his head. I'm sure it wasn't a pillowcase, but, you know, something over his head, and they're beating him, and he doesn't know where the punches are coming from. That's the time that I think I'd be getting upset. But Jesus, it says, as a lamb, before its shears is dumb, didn't even open his mouth. These were things that were happening to him, and he didn't get angry. But when we see Jesus getting angry was when it affected others. When he saw that the religious leaders were taking advantage of the people and were ripping them off in the name of God, it fired him up. And he went in and he cleaned house. And in Saul here, the Spirit of God comes upon him because he sees that his people were threatened. The people that God had given him to lead. He sees they're threatened and it angers him. And so guys, the Spirit of God coming upon you does not strip you of your emotions. And it does not make you a woman. It's okay to, to be uh, angry. And ladies, I would say the same thing to you. The Spirit of God coming upon you do, does not make you uh, somebody that, that lacks passion. Or somebody that, that might get angry when you see injustice. And when you see people treated unfairly. And so Saul takes the ox and he cuts him in pieces. He sends it out and he says, look... If you don't come to battle, this is what will happen to your oxen. And you got to remember, this would be their livelihood. This was their tractor. This was their truck. This would be the difference between making a living and not making a living. And So when he says, we're going to kill all of your oxen, that's a big deal. And the fear fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. They came out as one man. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh, Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, And killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered. So that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel. Who is he who said shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people come let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so they have a victory. And now all of Saul's detractors... And you remember that at the end of chapter 10, we see that there were those that despised him. And now all of those that despised him are super stoked about him. And they're like, hey, this is great. I mean who who was saying that we shouldn't have a king? Let's kill him. Let's kill him now. And, you know, everybody's on board with him. And isn't that the tendency that when there's victory and when things are, are going well, that the enemy wants us to come in and to fight amongst each other. Here they, they have victory and, and they've protected themselves from the enemy, from Nahash. And, and so they've They've defeated the enemy from the outside. And now it's like, you know what? Since we've defeated the enemy from the outside, let's just fight amongst ourselves. And that happens so often in the church. It's like we get bored or something. You know what? We really don't have uh, anything better to do. I mean, I know there's people dying and going to hell all around us. And and I know that we've been given this commission to go out and and to be um, missionaries in our community and to make disciples. And I know we're being attacked from... Every possible direction. But you know what? Let's just sit around and fight amongst ourselves about worthless doctrines. And about how church ought to be conducted. And 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 you know, infighting. And, and jockeying for position. And getting all bent out of shape about stupid stuff. And getting offended because nobody said hi. Or nobody stroked your ego. Or nobody, you know, told you how great you are. And you know what? Let's... Let's leave that church or let's, let's get mad at those people and let's talk about them and let's gossip and let's just destroy and slander uh, their reputation. And And it's exactly what is happening here. And Samuel wisely says, you know what, we're not going to do that. And, and that's good leadership to, to stop that kind of thing, to stop infighting, to stop the, the inward battle. And that's uh, why I really try to, to have in our church a focus That's outward and not inward. Because I think when you get inwardly focused as a church. You have no alternative but to just fight with each other. Because God's made us passionate. And he's gifted us. And he's made us to battle. And he's made us for conflict. But when we don't have that out in the world and we're not out engaging in battle and we're not using our gifts for the kingdom of God and we're just sitting around existing in our little bubble and growing fat as Christians and not giving it out and getting stagnant and dying by the minute, then we've got no alternative but to use our energy to fight with each other. And it's horrible. And I think as churches begin to get outward in their focus and to become others-minded and ministry-minded, some of that ridiculous infighting just goes away. And, and there's, there isn't this battling over stuff that we ought to just get over and just let it roll off of our back. Chapter 12, now Samuel said to all Israel, indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. And so Samuel says, look, you wanted a king, gave you a king. Here I am, I'm getting old, I'm about to pass the, the torch onto Saul here. And here's my kids, we all we know about his kids, they, they weren't great kids, they, they didn't model Samuel. But Samuel says, I've walked before you from my childhood. I think that's interesting because, again, I think there is a mindset that says that if you came to Christ at an early age, that you kind of have to walk away from the Lord. That there's going to be a point where you will go willy-nilly and, and do weird stuff for a while, and, and then you'll come back. But we see with Samuel, that didn't happen. He walked with the Lord from day one, and he never had that. And so don't, don't ever use that in your kids' lives as justification. Have expectation that your kids will never walk away from the Lord. Now, if they do, and there's nothing you can do about it, then there's nothing you can do about it. But have expectation that that will never happen. And pour into your kids. Give them Jesus. Point them to Jesus on a daily basis. Model it in your life authentically. You guys, there is a real easy explanation why kids walk away from the Lord who are raised in the church. It's very simple. They've never seen it really lived in somebody's life. It's just a joke. There's a reason why people call pastors' kids PKs and pastors' kids. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why pastors' kids often rebel. It's because they've seen hypocrisy and it isn't real and it's not authentic. And dad is one way at church and another way at home. And so, why would I want that gone? It's a joke. And so one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to live authentically, to be Jesus to them, to be the same wherever you're at, to point them to Jesus, to take them to the word, to pray with them, to pray with your wife, men, that your kids see that this is real, that this is not an imaginary friend, that that this isn't a God that we go to when things get really tough, it's not a genie in a bottle. You know what, Lord? I really need you now. Will you come out of the bottle and and grant these three wishes? And, And if we're giving our children that indication, then yes, they will bag it. And who can blame them? But Samuel walked before the Lord from childhood to this day. And so have expectations for your kids that they'll never walk away from the Lord, that they'll always follow him, that they don't Have to make the same mistakes you made. That they don't have to experience things to know they're wrong. That is a lie from the devil. God has given us a conscience. We don't have to experience it and then have the guilt and go, Oh yeah, that's why we don't do that. They don't have to do it. Teach them. Tell them the difference between right and wrong. Teach them principles of godliness. Talk to them about sensitive subjects. Be open and honest and vulnerable. It's your job. You have to do it. He says, Here I am, verse 3, Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, or Gideon and Beden, Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety. And so Samuel just recounts their history. He starts off by saying, look, I've never cheated you. I've never wronged you. I've lived my life in service to you. And so I think I've established some authority in your life and I want you to listen to me. And then he begins to recount their history and this pattern that they've always been in and that they would rebel against God and God would bring a deliverer and they would rebel against God and he would bring a deliverer. And so he, he brings it up to the present time, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. They wanted a king so badly. They wanted a tangible, fleshly leader in their life. And God is reminding them that he was their king, that he was their ruler. He was their leader. And isn't it our tendency to to want a human to lead us, to rule us? We want to be led by somebody that we can see. Where, Where the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. But we don't want to live by faith. We want to live by sight. And so we want to be led by a man. And I think we're seeing that in our presidential election right now. On both sides. Both sides are, are lifting up their candidate as the savior. And when he gets into office, it's going to solve all of our problems. And man, I don't think I should have to tell you that that isn't true. But maybe I do need to tell you. I mean, I've only been through a few elections. I remember Reagan. I remember Bush Sr. I remember Clinton. Obviously Bush. W. And, and now, one of these two guys... And I can tell you in my short history with presidents, it doesn't change much, does it? Jesus is on the throne. I remember eight years ago, W was going to be the answer to every conservative Christian's dilemma. We had eight years of Clinton, and he drove us into moral depravity. And W was going to solve all of our problems. Is that true? Obviously not. Sin is running rampant. And I'm not telling you not to vote. Do vote. Be a good citizen. Do, do what God's calling you to do. Pray for the, the leaders locally and at the state level and nationally. We are called to do that. But guys, don't put any man on a pedestal. Don't think that any person is going to be a savior. They're not. Jesus is our savior. It's the same reason I don't want you to put me on a pedestal. I will let you down every time. And I try to do my best to remove myself from that pedestal as much as I can. Because God wants to be your king. God wants to be your ruler. God wants you to go to him. He made it possible by sending his son so that you can have relationship with Jesus and with the Father. And you can go to the Lord. You don't need a mediator. You don't need a man. You need Jesus. And so before you pick up that phone, go to the Lord. Before you seek counsel from a man, from a person, go to the Lord. And when you don't do that, and when you lift a person up as the ruler of your life, you're doing the exact same thing that the children of Israel did. You're saying, Lord, I'm glad you're there and it's cool and all, but I want a fleshly, tangible representation of you. Because I don't want to live by faith, I want to live by sight. And the awesome thing about that is that God will continue to graciously deal with us, as we see here in our text. Samuel goes on, he says, you wanted a king? Now therefore, here's the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. God allowed it. God brought it to pass. Guys, don't ever think that because God allowed something or brought something to pass, that it's his will for you. Don't ever think that because something worked out, that that necessitates God's blessing." It doesn't mean that at all. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. And so he says, look, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against his commandments, then then the Lord will continue to be your king. You can continue to follow him. He won't reject you. He won't forsake you. Guys, what we see here is grace. Because I think what I would say if I was the Lord is, look, you're done. You wanted a king, here's your king, have fun, I'll talk to you later. But that's not what he says. He gives them another opportunity, it's God's grace. And maybe you've made some poor decisions, and you're stuck with that Saul in your life. Maybe you're married to Saul, and you knew that you knew that that wasn't what God had for you, they weren't a believer, it it was unequally yoked, you knew you were rebelling against God, and now there you have it. You got what you wanted. It doesn't mean you're done. Maybe you, you're working for a Saul. Maybe your business is a Saul. There's, there's many ways that this can apply. The, the pushing, the prodding, the, the wanting to make it happen, and it happens, and now you know it was wrong, and now you're stuck with it, and the enemy will come back and say, you're done. That's it. But God wants to tell you tonight, look, keep following me, keep serving me, obey me, and I'll bless you. It doesn't mean there won't be repercussions from your poor decisions, but it also doesn't mean that your life is over and that God can never bless you again. God can redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. God can make beauty from ashes. That's his specialty. It's what he does. He's a God of grace. And so don't let the devil condemn you. There is therefore no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And so let Jesus redeem your poor decisions and start now to follow him. And to make him your king. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. And I kind of see this, the hand of the Lord will be against you almost like a spanking. The hand of the Lord will be against you. If you want to keep rebelling and keep doing your own thing and keep propping Saul's up all over your life and not learning your lesson, then the hand of God will be against you and he'll chastise you. And he'll correct you. But what does Hebrews tell us? That the Lord chastises those he loves. Just like a good parent. A good parent disciplines and corrects their children. People that say, oh, I love my kid too much to, to discipline. Him. No, you don't. You love yourself too much and you want your kid to be your best friend. And you don't want to have an enemy living in the same house. You're selfish. That's the bottom line. You're selfish and, and, and you don't have a backbone. That's the problem. If you really loved your kids, you'd discipline them and you would do it consistently and you would do it lovingly, just like God does. And if you want to keep rebelling against the Lord and you want to keep following your own ways and you want to keep making decisions that dishonor God and you want to keep saying, Lord, not your will, but my will be done. God will keep right on letting you do it, but his hand will be against you and you'll be miserable. The most miserable people on the planet are Christians who are living for their flesh. It is a horrible place to be. His hand will be against you. You'll live in constant guilt. You know what I'm talking about. Just constant guilt and shame. And God doesn't want us to live like that. He wants us to be free from that. He wants us to be filled with joy. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking a king for yourself. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So Samuel wanted them to know if, if there's any question at all that you guys screwed up here and that this was not a good decision. If there's any question in your mind, I'm going to clear that right up for you. And I'm going to ask the Lord to send thunder and rain. And apparently there were people that thought this was a great idea. And we were totally justified in what we did. And Samuel was showing them that, no, you weren't. You were wrong. And sometimes, you guys, we need a Samuel to show us that we are way out of God's will. And you need to have teachable hearts. And you need to be open to the Lord's voice. The people greatly feared. When they see the thunder and the rain, they're like, oh, I guess this wasn't such a great thing. And all the people said to Samuel, pray, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die for we have added to all our sins, the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. Again, you guys, we make bad decisions. We disobey. We dishonor the Lord. We make monumental, life-changing decisions that absolutely alter the course of our life. But there's still hope. And Jesus still extends his hands to you and says, look, just start following me now. It doesn't mean the repercussions are going to go away. It doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. It will follow you and there will be trials and there will be struggles but just start following me now. Don't fear. Some of you are living in fear. You're living in fear over your past. You're living in fear that God could never redeem your life and you're short-selling the grace of God. You're short-selling the cross. You're short-selling the power of God to redeem a life. Pray for us. Samuel says, do not fear. You've turned aside. Start following the Lord with all of your heart now. Man, I charge you. To do that, to start following the Lord with all of your heart now, today. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. Don't turn aside from following the Lord, because if you do, you're going to start wasting your life following empty, frivolous, stupid stuff that doesn't profit or deliver. It's nothing, it's vain, it's useless. What do you want your life to be defined by? For the Lord will not forsake his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. He doesn't say, I will never leave you nor forsake you unless you totally screw your life up, then you're on your own. No, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you ever, no matter what you do. But you've got to turn your life over to me if you want me to redeem it. The Lord will never forsake his people for his great name's sake. His name is on your life. He's put His name on you. And you mean something to Him. And you're valuable to Him. And His reputation is on you. And He doesn't give up on you. Just like you don't give up on your kids. And, and you see parents who, whose sons and whose daughters have just ruined their lives with years of drug abuse and stealing from their parents and being in prison and getting into all sorts of legal trouble and, and, and being just absolute... Shame to their family And, and here you see this 70 year old mom With a 50 year old son Who's still just totally ruining his life And yet she still loves him And she's been putting up with this for 50 years She'd never give up on him Yeah she's disappointed Yeah she's tired But she would never give up She's holding out hope That someday this kid Is going to turn around And that's what God does to us He just loves us And he graces us out. And he keeps giving us opportunities. And he says, look, turn today. Make me your Lord today. I will never forsake you. My name is on you. I love you. It has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Do you know that it pleases God? That his name is on you? That you're his people? That you're his child? It pleases God. I would think it would absolutely embarrass God. That he'd be like, you know... Your name, my name's on you. But, you know, could you wear a coat or something so that nobody sees it? But no, God is pleased that we're His people. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And I want to close with this in verse 23. Far be it from me, Samuel says, that I should sin in not praying for you. Prayer is the proof of love. And love is the product of prayer. Prayer is the proof of love. If you truly love people, if you truly have a heart for people, and on Wednesday nights, I, I loved to To talk about ministry. And I love to talk about serving God. And I love to talk about what we're doing as a church and my vision. Because this is the core group of the church. And many of you are involved in ministry. And are leading home groups. And teaching Sunday school. And your elders and your deacons. And listen. Ministry is about loving people. And if you love people, you will pray for them. And if you have a heart for people, you will pray for them. And if you don't pray, you don't care. It's the bottom line. And as a leader, you are sinning. You are sinning against God. Prayer is the proof of love. If I truly love you, I will pray for you. If I truly love my wife, I will pray for her. I can say to my wife, I love you. But if I don't pray for her, it's empty. I can say to my kids, I love you. But if I'm not praying for them, I don't really love them. You see, prayer is the proof of love. And you guys, ministry is all about loving people. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And how we can prove our love is by praying for people. And you might say, you know what? I don't love that person. I've got no heart for them whatsoever. Maybe it's somebody that's hurt you, that's abused you. Maybe it's somebody that's offended you. Listen, if you want to produce love, begin to pray for that person. And it will be an amazing thing that will happen as God produces love. And on Sunday, we talked about being selfless. We talked about being others-minded. And as ministers, as people that that love people and that want to serve people, prayer is the gauge of humility. Selfish, prideful people don't pray. Think about that. Selfish, prideful people don't pray. Because we don't care about others and we don't think we need anybody else. I don't need any help, so why do I need to pray? I'm good. It's pride at its very core. That's self-sufficient. That says, I don't need anybody. And so if you're a person who doesn't pray, you are a prideful person. That's the bottom line. Prayer is the greatest gauge of humility. And prayerlessness is the epitome of selfishness. And Samuel says, you know what? I will not sin by not praying for you. And look what he says in verse 23. I will not cease to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. So first, I will pray for you. Then I will teach you. And you know what? Often we get that totally backwards. And I'm at the front of the line. Teach, 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 teach. Oh, and and, and we'll put a little prayer on the end. You know what? God always put the priority on prayer. Pray for people. Pray for people. And then teach them. In the book of Acts, when there was that division in the early church about the Hellenistic widows and how they were dealing with them, and they raised up deacons to take care of the practical needs What does it say? It says that the the elders, the pastor said, we can't neglect prayer and the teaching of the word to wait on tables. And the order was prayer first, then the teaching of the word. We see here, Samuel prayed, then he taught. You guys, if you want to serve people, the greatest thing you can do is pray for them. We need to be a praying church. We need to pray for people. And I'll be the first to tell you that that is a weakness of mine and I need to improve in that area. And the Lord has challenged me to do that, and I hope he's challenged you. So we're going to spend some time in worship, so let's pray, and let's ask God to make these things real to us, and then let's worship the Lord relating to, to what God has spoken to us tonight. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, a challenging word to me. God, forgive me for the Saul's in my own life. God, for for wanting a person, Lord, a tangible, fleshly representation of you, God, in I don't need that. I have Jesus. God, forgive me. God, forgive me for my prayerlessness. God, for my pride, my self-sufficiency. Lord, for saying with my lips that I love somebody, but truly in my heart, not really showing and proving that I love them by praying for them. God, make us people of prayer. God, make us a church that prays, that prays for one another. God, make us people who are completely dependent upon you and not ourselves. God, forgive us of our pride. Strip us tonight, God, of our pride, of our selfishness, of our reliance upon our own goodness, and our own efforts, and our own abilities. God, forgive us. God, break us. Bring us to the end of ourselves. Draw us unto you tonight. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that that when we've turned our back on you, that you always give us opportunity to come back and you're extending your love and your grace and the cross is always there to bridge that separation between us and the Father. And Lord, tonight we embrace the cross. We embrace your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, we ask that you would set us on the right path, that we'd begin to follow you and to make you our king. And that Lord, we would confess it and we would move on. Having that conviction draw us to the cross and not away from the cross. Lord, be glorified tonight as we worship you. Confirm these things in our heart. Lord, make them real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.